Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss climate investment in Australia and around the globe. In terms of launch, we launched with 16 supporters, um, collectively managing uh, over $850 billion in uh, funds under management in Australia. And answer your questions on Australia's submarine program. Because once you've got submarines at sea, they have to be factored into how the adversary thinks. To kick off this episode, Anastasia Capetis speaks to Emma Hurd, CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change. They discuss the Climate League 2030 initiative, climate investment, and the significant rise in renewable energy investments. Hi, and welcome um, to ASPE's regular podcast on uh, climate change and national security, where we explore uh, all things related to climate, national risk and resilience, and broader issues of security. Today, we would like to welcome Emma Hurd, um, and she is the CEO of the Investor Group for Climate Change. Emma's been working in climate change, sustainability, public policy and finance for almost 20 years. So Emma, welcome today. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the new initiative of your group, the Climate League 2030. What is that about? Hello, and it's very nice to join you today. Yeah, I mean, I guess Climate League 2030 is an initiative that um, uh, IGCC, or Investor Group on Climate Change, have been working on for uh, a while now, looking really at how do we galvanise private sector support for an ambitious emission reduction goal in Australia. What Climate League 2030 is, is a new 10-year private sector-led initiative to galvanise support for a goal, a shared goal, of reducing Australia's national greenhouse gas emissions by 230 million tonnes by 2030. So 230 by 2030, or at least 230 by 2030, I should say, because obviously we'd be happy to overachieve on that target as well. Really what we're trying to do with this with this initiative is to set up a pledge and act platform. So um, supporters to the campaign pledge to support this shared commitment of uh, reducing uh, Australia's emissions by 230 million tonnes by 2030 and then commit to take actions to in, in support of that goal. And we've set up a, a website where uh, all of the supporters actually track and report on the actions that they're taking to help deliver on it. We've set up this initiative because... Um, we know that the private sector has a crucial role to play in helping Australia achieve our emission reduction goals. We know that science tells us if we are to have a hope of staying close to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in line with our overarching commitment to get to net zero by 2050. And we know that that translates in terms of Australia's, you know, proportional share of, an, of a, a reduction target of around at least 45% of BAU levels by 2030. And that roughly translates to about exactly 230 million tonnes on an annualised basis. So we thought let's, let's focus on the number, let's look at what the private sector can do and let's get serious about really galvanising private sector action to achieve that goal over the next 10 years which we know is a make or break decade for climate change globally. So that's that's Climate League in a nutshell. Obviously happy to talk about it in more detail. But uh... yeah, Thank you. Um, there's a couple of things I just wanted to explore. One is um, what's the enthusiasm level that you found uh, in business in Australia for joining this kind of initiative? 
Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we've started off with this particular initiative with um, 16 founding supporters. Uh, we've started with the institutional investor community because that's our membership base, but we are looking to expand it out to the rest of the finance sector and inviting our colleagues to join and then out to the rest of the um, the economy and out to the rest of the private sector in the next 18 months. In terms of launch, we launched with 16 supporters, um, collectively managing uh, over 850 billion in uh, funds under management in Australia, uh, reaching about um, 6 million Australians through their, through their retirement savings. Um, some, of the, some of the biggest names in the Australian um, superannuation industry as well supporting this initiative. Since we've launched it, we've had really positive and strong response. We've had a number of queries. We're looking forward to announcing more supporters and signatories in the coming months. And really what I've been quite surprised at, to be honest, is just that there's a real hunger in the private sector to have something palpable and tangible to be getting on with. And, you know, if there's one thing that business loves, it's numbers and goals and targets. So in that sense, um, I think we're, we're finding that it's, um, it's, quite, it's a good time to be launching an initiative like this, which is actually all about what can the private sector do to help Australia hit our carbon goals. So are similar initiatives being launched around the world or is this a, a very unique initiative? Well, we're seeing a lot of private sector collaboration through on different platforms around the world. Um, but in terms of targeting um, actual emission reduction goals, this is the first that we've seen uh, globally uh, of an initiative of this kind. We've seen kind of similar approaches such as in the US, for example, with the, the We're Still In campaign, which is when uh, President Trump announced that they would be withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, a, um, a really significant consortia of um, business, civil society, um, local government um, committed to, to pursuing the goals of the Paris Agreement regardless. Um, we've also seen initiatives such as in New Zealand, the um, Business Leaders Coalition on Climate Change, which is um, um, supporting to take action on climate change. But I think in, in all this, is the, I think Climate League is the first we've seen which has that, that shared target in terms of actual tonnes of emission reductions that we're hoping to achieve. Um, but I'm sure it won't be the last. There's, there's, again, there's no shortage of collaboration going on in the private sector on mm -hmm. climate change uh, or support for more ambitious goals as well. Um, I just wanted to get your views. It seems, um, at least in the last 18 months, there's been such um, a momentum with various parts of the financial world in terms of making a transition to essentially make the global financial um, market more responsive to climate change. Is that something that you've seen? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a real seismic shift um, in global financial markets around recognition of climate change. We've seen it from a number of directions and um, this is probably also reflective of the different drivers that are pushing this change through in the finance sector. We've seen the financial regulators globally and in Australia um, recognising that climate change represents a systemic risk to our economy, um, both in terms of the physical impacts but also in terms of the economic implications of the global transition that's underway. Uh, and that, that systemic impact needs to be managed from a regulatory perspective. Um, we've seen it in terms of recognition around the need for greater data and disclosure to inform um, better, uh, more intelligent uh, investment decisions and through the emergence of frameworks like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which I just called TCFD for short from here on in. Um, and that kind of that availability, that demand for better data is, is, is flowing through markets all around the world um, in terms of reporting and, and disclosure requirements and regulation around it. Uh, and the accounting industry. We've also seen it in terms of the investors and banks and insurers, all three streams of the finance sector recognising that climate represents 
credit risks or investment risks for both uh, portfolio level management uh, decisions, but also um, specific investment decisions for key industry sectors at all levels of the economy. And we've also seen recognition that there are significant opportunities in terms of the transition. So we're not just moving away from particular types of activities, we're moving towards whole new industries, whole new centres of gravity in terms of the global economy um, and, and a whole new range of players. And now is the time to get on board with those emerging, um, you know, the emerging giants of the next 10 years in terms of the low carbon transition to be capitalising on those investment opportunities. So macro risk, investment risk, insurance risk and a massive investment opportunity, I think all of those factors are what's driving the significant shift we're seeing across the finance sector. So just to, to briefly get into the issue of insurance companies, I remember um, almost, you know, what is it, 15 years ago uh, now, uh, in the middle of the bush years in the United States and around Hurricane Katrina, and I remember as a journalist doing a story um, about the fact that after Hurricane Katrina, the uh, US actuarial firms, the big actuarial giants, went to Washington and said to the Republicans, we will no longer insure, insure you your sovereign risk has just gone from being able to be priced to, to being unpriceable. Um, you need to do something about climate change. And just after that, uh, Bush did make a statement on climate change and uh, he didn't, didn't sign, sign on to Kyoto at the time, but um, he did work with John Howard and like-minded to put out a, some kind of a, a climate a statement and plan. So that was a long time ago now. How... What's their feeling of urgency in insurance companies mm-hmm. yeah. now, 15 years later and after the couple of years we've had in terms of big weather events? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's also an interesting little reminder that, um, you know, we've been looking at these climate change issues for quite a while now. And also I think it's also useful to remind ourselves that um, Prime Minister Howard was the first Australian Prime Minister to support emissions trading in Australia. Yes, it's always good to right. back that one as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Insurance company is really interesting. So they have spent the intervening years, uh, my sense of it is, doing a few things. One, trying to get their hands around the complexity of the challenge that they face in terms of a modelling and forecasting perspective. So how do you begin to adopt a systematic approach to modelling for potential multiple scenarios where the actual cost impacts are highly localised? And then what's your responsibility in terms of product development for your core purposes and curing against that risk. And I think it's interesting that in the last, say, 10, 15 years, we've also seen this expression emerge that climate is an unhedgeable risk, as in there are certain climate impacts that you can't hedge against because they are so all-encompassing. So in actual fact, your best hedge is to avoid the risk altogether, which is to actually reduce emissions and avoid the worst of the physical costs and impacts that we're likely to see. Then, I mean, then you have to deal with transition risks, but that's, that's another kettle of fish. Um, in, in terms of an insurance perspective and a bit more straightforward. I think you've also seen pressure on insurance companies around their underwriting activities in terms of, uh, you know, what kinds of industries are they underwriting? And if one part of their business is saying climate is an unhedgeable risk, we need to avoid it, and the other part of their business is underwriting fossil fuel expansion, for example, you know, there's been some inherent contradictions which have been um, rightly pointed out by civil society on numerous occasions, shall we say. Uh, and there was a bit of a lull there, I think, for a few years where the insurance companies were like, well, we're not quite sure how to deal with this. And and, and so we'll, we'll, I think, it'd be, you know, maybe it's a bit harsh to say, but fiddle around the edges a bit, to be honest. But in the last few years, we've seen, again, a shift in the insurers. 
they've been working with the regulators. They've been collaborating across the finance sector to come up with standardised forecasting models. And in the Australian context, for example, there's a big initiative called the Climate Measurement Standards Initiative, which was actually driven um, by a key uh, person, uh, Sharanjit Padam at QBE, um, which has got the whole Australian finance sector collaborating around um, standardised approach to forecast scenario modelling for climate change to voluntarily integrate it into their um, credit risk, lending risk, insurance risk processes. Um, you're also seeing uh, collaborations emerging around valuation models, looking to get a more um, standardised approach to how you integrate resilience and, and risk factors into valuation models as well. So there's kind of like we kind of there was a lot of exploration for a few years, but I think now we're pushing forward in a much more constructive way. But I mean, the fundamental issue remains is that you know the insurers also have the issue that they they look long term, but they price annually. So if it's an incremental change year on year, you can price your way out of it, but suddenly you've priced your way to oblivion at the end of it. So trying to grapple with those mismatch in the time horizons, I think, has been quite challenging for them as well. And that's not unique to insurance. That's probably true of most businesses. I mean, yeah. it is a devilish, the complex problem. The other thing I briefly wanted to just chat about was, um, I mean, this earlier this year, BlackRock, who's the world's biggest asset manager, am I right in saying that? made an announcement that, that they were going to be really looking at sustainability in terms of their business investments. They were going to start voting uh, uh, on uh, for climate change initiatives on, on boards, um, that they were going to start um, punishing, voting to punish companies um, that, that weren't doing uh, enough on climate change. They also announced that they were uh, creating a, a risk-adjusted bond. What does, it, what does that mean? What, what sort of effects do things like that have on investor sentiment? Yeah, I mean, there are certain players across the finance sector that because of their size, their scale, their influence and their reach act as gravitational moons. <laughs> I think it would be fair to say. I mean, there's a large swathes of the industry that are acting progressively on climate change issues uh, for their own reasons. But then there'll be another whole tranche who will move with the pull of that that side, that, that gravitational moon of a company the big, as big as BlackRock. I think as well what's interesting about BlackRock is because of their size, they also um, have a significant amount of influence on a number of companies who uh, may up until now may have been more resistant to the realities of climate risk as well. Mm. But it's also one of a number of those really big movements that we've seen. You know, we've also seen it with um, in the last few years, for example, with um, GPIF, the Japanese um, sovereign pension mm. fund, is another one of those, one of the biggest funds in the world, um, also making significant movements. Um, or you've seen it in terms of some of the biggest companies in the world making really significant shifts. Like there are kind of key players across every industry that when they move, it matters. And BlackRock is one of them. They've also, been, again, they've also been under pressure from civil society to better articulate their position on climate change um, as well. So I think they're also responding to that community pressure to, um, to be more transparent around what they're doing on climate change issues. Um, in terms of your specific question around the bond, I mean, bonds are interesting. Bonds have been moving for a little while now, and there's a couple of ways to think about it. You know, we've seen the explosion of green bonds, uh, which are bonds which are specifically for the purposes of investing in environmental or climate solutions, uh, green labelled bonds, um, which I think has uh, just hit a, a trillion in, in terms of green issued bonds. Um, but what we're seeing coming through now is what's sometimes referred to as sustainability or transition bonds. And this is basically where you're looking at bonds which are about reducing the emissions intensity of economic activity. 
and they sit alongside green bonds, which are about increasing investment in green solutions or climate solutions. So the two of them working together are about decarbonising and growing the solution side of the pool. So I think that's a really interesting frontier. And then you're also seeing the integration of climate risk considerations into sovereign bonds and government bonds. And that's really significant for Australia because as a carbon-intensive trade-exposed economy, that is goes to the very heart of the nature of our sovereign carbon risk mm. in terms of what steps are we taking to mitigate our exposure to both the transition and the physical risks associated with climate change and how will it affect um, our, our, our sovereign risk rating in future years, um, as well as on, on a whole range of other frontiers, such as in trade negotiations and potential border adjustments based on carbon intensity and climate change policy. These are all the issues that go to the heart of Australia's future economic prosperity and security, because it's very much around where are we going to sit in the future decarbonised global economy and how are we going to prosper in an environment where carbon has an extreme cost. So just to break it down for our audience a little bit more, do these developments uh, mean things like Australia finds it more uh, expensive to borrow money yeah. on, on the international markets? Um, it risks losing a whole bunch of foreign investment to other markets? Yep. Uh, what would be some of the other major, are there reputational risks here as well in terms well, of relationships yeah. with other countries? Harder to attract investment and harder to keep investment, quality investment as well, I should say, because that's also a, that's also <laughs> a factor. <laughs> yeah, and it's also just more expensive to do business here. Um, but it also means, you know, in the context of Australia's financial system, more investment goes offshore. So, you know, we have a growing um, funds management industry here with um, compulsory superannuation already. Uh, an increasing amount of that is very actively looking for low carbon investment opportunities and finding it easier to invest offshore than onshore. So, I mean, uh, you know, and it's also about getting access to future growth industries as well. I mean, Australia is actually really well placed if we choose to be for those future low carbon investment opportunities as well. You know, we have really strong renewable uh, resources. We have great technical capabilities. We have a lot of the uh, minerals and resources in the supply chains of the technology solutions of the future. We, we actually have that, um, the skills and capability to develop a lot of that um, uh, new um, technological solutions in, in, in industry sectors like ag, for example, not just in terms of energy. So we're actually really well placed should we choose to um, but our capacity to get access to those growth opportunities could also be constrained um, should we fail to uh, appropriately look ahead and, and, and manage for some of these emerging sovereign risk issues that are emerging from climate change. One stat I would just quote that probably adds to this is that, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as being all about exports, which we are, but it's important to remember that today, just today, more than 50% of Australia's largest trading partners now have commitments in place to get to net zero by 2050 or 2060 in the case of China. Of the ones who don't, Japan is on the cusp of announcing a similar commitment. And if the if Joe Biden wins the US election, that'll take it up again. So this is this is something which is surrounding us as an island that we really need to get across. So, I mean, really you're saying here that, um, yeah, Australia's really at risk of at economic and also political isolation on this issue, especially with, with a Biden win. If the opposite happens and, and Trump manages to eke out an electoral college win, what happens to investor sentiment there? Does it remain strong? Well, we still have, uh, I mean, I think there are broader <laughs> broader geopolitical yeah, broader that. issues there. But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this will be one of the major dimensions of the risks associated with the next four years. 
Um, but it would also consolidate China's position as the leading driver of global decarbonisation trends, which also has significant implications for Australia on a number of fronts uh, and for us regionally as well. Um, but what we've seen in, in the US is that probably not that dissimilar to Australia, in many ways private sector plus local government and state governments are moving anyway. So you could still have the transition happening it would just be messy and unstrategic, shall we say. Um, it, it would make it a lot harder for Australia. Well, it, it would compound some of the challenges that Australia is already facing in managing a clean transition as well. Just finally, I wanted to touch on um, another interesting issue, which is the rise of really, really big renewable energy companies. In the last century, the world's major fossil fuel companies um, have had profound effects on, on global geopolitics. What does it mean when a company like Nextier, the world's biggest provider of wind and solar, is now more valuable than fossil fuel giant Exxon? Mm, yes, that was a really interesting um, shift that happened just in the last couple of months. You know, it's interesting that the, um, the energy industry is going through, I mean, I think to call it a disruption kind of undersells it, to be honest. I think the disruption was happening maybe 10 years ago, but I think what we're seeing today is a profound shift in terms of their, the way they operate, who the major players are, and the implications that has for countries, economies, and for geopolitics and security issues as well on a couple of fronts. One, there are new players that are emerging, so it's not yet clear how they will choose to interact with policies and politics um, at a regional level. Secondly, there are, it is promoting an environment in which there's a lot more energy independence. I mean, with renewables, you're dependent upon your local resources for the most part, um, and supply chains might become a factor, but not to the same extent. Um, as you know, subject to whether or not you've got sufficient um, domestic renewable resources to generate, but you know, if you look at the combination or the, the bucket of technologies, then there's usually almost always an option. But also it becomes a question of, you know, how is that going to influence economies? Like some economies have been heavily dependent upon uh, particular energy resources. I mean, in Australia's case, it's coal, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, gas to a great extent, but hydrogen is a future opportunity there as well. Um, for other economies, some of the petrostates that are extremely dependent uh, have been extremely powerful because of their dominance of the market. I mean, the implications of that shift could potentially be profound in, in, in broader ways. I think we're at the beginning of that shift. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, what's also interesting is that renewable companies tend to be quite different to traditional energy companies. They um, have different supply chains. They are usually a lot more, they behave and think and act, if I could say, a little bit more like tech companies rather than necessarily like the traditional energy companies. A lot of what they're looking at, apart from hydro, I should add, hydro is slightly different here, but a lot of them, it's, it's, it's modular, scalable, manufactured technologies deployed into large open spaces um, that, that gets you what you need, um, that can be built uh, relatively quickly. Uh, and once they're operating, they don't have a huge amount of ongoing costs associated with them. Um, well so and you know so the behavior of the companies and the culture of the companies is often quite different hydro is different and hydro will play out differently but yeah so it's a different industry different behavior it'll be really interesting to see how that impacts just to just to backtrack slightly there are you, are you saying that um you know these new new renewable energy companies acting more like tech companies do you mean that they're slightly more ethical? And I'm just saying that because fossil fuel companies have been associated with, um, you know, destabilising national politics and, and states and associated with corruption in states. So uh, do you feel that, that um, renewables will be better on this front? 
Oh, well, that that remains to be seen. <laughs> the onus is on the companies themselves to prove up what kind of an industry they are going to be. There may be different ethical challenges. So for hydro companies, the biggest ethical challenge is they're around ensuring accessibility, availability of water across water basins and through river systems. It's particularly an issue for Southeast Asia, you know, in terms of water flows between China, Pakistan, India, into Southeast Asia, into Laos, for example, you know, how that's how that's going to work. And, you know, the, the trade-offs with water for an energy as well. Um, but for a lot of other tech companies, it's going to be in the supply chain. It's supply chain ethics and risks in terms of manufacturing and inputs and services and, and, and how that works as well. So labour standards might be a factor. I mean, there's also a big issue here around, for economies, there's also a question around what's often called the just transition, which is how do you ensure that new industries coming through deliver good work conditions, fair work conditions for their, to their workforce, that it's not a casualised contract-based uh, more insecure working environment as well, that, that you maintain those kind of labour standards in terms of new workforces as well. So there are some ethical challenges there in terms of the labour force considerations as well. But, yeah, I mean, really interesting challenges for the industry. I think it's it's the onus is on them to prove that they are better than their historical peers in terms of their track record in, in uh, ethics, behavioural and broader contribution to society. But that's true of every business and every industry in the 21st century as well. For sure. Look, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, even though I'd, we'd love to unpack some of these issues further. Uh, Emma, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand um, how investors are thinking about climate change and what that means for sovereign risk. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Peter Jennings speaks to James Goldrick. James is adjunct professor at UNSW with over 35 years service in the Royal Australian Navy. They discuss ASPE's recently launched report, Submarines, Your Questions Answered, and the complexities of Australia's submarine program. Hi, it's Peter Jennings here from ASPE. Today we're launching a special report, Submarines, Your Questions Answered. And one of the key authors of this document, uh, with me and a number of other folks, is James Goldrick. James, great to have you here. Thanks, Peter. So we've got an opportunity to talk about a range of issues which are presented in this book. The idea behind it was really to provide a kind of a plain English guide for non-specialists to understand uh, submarine technology and the issues facing the Australian government in its procurement of submarines. But let's start really where I think any strategic discussion should, and that is What's the strategic case for submarines? What, why should we be investing so much into this capability? Well, even though submarines are inevitably very expensive, they do represent a capability which immediately creates a deterrent effect uh, on any would-be adversary because of their stealth characteristics, because of their lethality, because of their ability to go out and operate for very long periods undetected, unknown where they are, uncertain in the mind of the would-be adversary. That means that they can create a, uh, an effect which is almost out of proportion to anything else one can do. And this is an effect which is apparent before conflict and during conflict. Because once you've got submarines at sea, they have to be factored into how the adversary thinks. And they complicate the adversary's problem and they create risk for anything the adversary wants to do, whether that's defensive or offensive. There's a great photo in here of some open water with the title saying Australian submarines on patrol. And of course, it's that stealthy characteristic that you're talking about, whether they're there or not, an adversary has to take account of the fact that 
Australia has the capability. Yes, indeed. And that effect, of course, multiplies almost exponentially as you go from, say, having one or two submarines to three or four. And of course, those numbers are particularly important if you have diesel electric submarines, because diesel electric submarines do take time to reposition. Mm. And the great risk for them is that if these adversary thinks they know where your, say, single submarine is, then they can go around it. But if you've got more than one, that isn't the answer. It complicates things enormously. We'll get to the current and future capability soon, but take us through some of the historical experience that Australia has had with submarines, James. Well, the submarine in Australia are actually the same age. Uh, indeed, the British and Americans were buying, buying their first submarines just as the Commonwealth was being established. And from the first, people like Alfred Deakin were really interested in submarines mm. because of the realisation that they had this enormous lethality and at that stage, it was very much thinking about defending Australia's ports. Um, but that idea of lethality, which was out of proportion to the investment, even though the investment's always been big and it's always been a demanding investment technologically, uh, was something that was repeated um, when the fleet unit was established and came in 1913. It brought two very modern submarines with it, one of which, of course, distinguished itself in the Dardanelles mm. as part of the Gallipoli campaign. Mm. And between the wars, the British had a buying time concept of having a large submarine force in the um, South China Sea. And Australia was meant to contribute to that force um, with, with its boats operating in the archipelago. We weren't able to afford to continue doing that with the Depression and other factors. Mm. Um, the idea of that lethality was resuscitated um, thinking in the 50s and 60s uh, when the Navy was increasingly having to come to terms with the expense of carrier-based air power but wanting lethality and wanting reach, we, we brought in uh, submarines within form the Oberon class, uh, which commissioned in the mid-60s with the first four and then two later in the 70s. And really from that capability, we've maintained a submarine force ever since. And I think it's, as the uh, successive defence pa uh, white papers have indicated, its significance um, and its criticality as part of Australia's uh, defensive inventory um, has, I think, increased over the years. Of course, we've also seen that the numbers grow. Um, so we, we started, I think, initially with four Oberons that then grew to six. Uh, we then had six Collins-class submarines. Um, and then in 2009, we have the 2009 White Paper, which Kevin Rudd was most closely involved in developing which to the surprise of some actually doubled the proposed number of submarines that we'll see from six to 12 uh, with the future attack class. Um, of course, it's gonna take us quite some time to get to that point, uh, James. Uh, I, I don't think we'll actually have 12 hulls in the water until well into the 2040s. Is it fair to say that, that even that level of capability, given the size of Australia, and the oceans that we have a strategic interest in buys us a significant deterrent capability or is that perhaps overstating what submarines can do? I don't think it's overstating what submarines can do. They do, I, I think it isn't a silver bullet and it isn't a single shot. You need to have other capabilities. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, while the expression balance force is, is an abused one, I think, you know, if we look across the whole defence, Australian Defence Force, you know, you need to have a balance of capabilities which um, not only give the government options, but also complicate that problem for any would-be adversary. Uh, 
I think while the number 12 was very much a surprise at the time um, and very much, I think, you know, driven by the Prime Minister, um, in many ways it was, a, in a longer-term sense, a realistic recognition of the fact that we're coming into a much more challenging strategic environment and we need to have enough weight, um, even if it's very limited weight by some nations' terms, it's enough weight to have deterrent effect. So I think the 12 um, is not a bad number, even if it's probably more than the absolute minimum, um, because, as I was saying earlier, with diesel electric boats, if you've got those additional numbers, then you have the ability to put them out in different spots and, again, make sure that the enemy can't uncomplicate the situation. It is interesting, James, that we're back talking about the South China Sea as an obvious area of strategic interest and, and geography doesn't change. It may well have been an interest, you know, in the post-war years mm. and we're back into that into that situation again. Something that I think is worth raising here, um, we found this when we were working on the uh, external advisory panel for the 2016 Defence White Paper, is that there was a huge degree of public interest in the idea of nuclear propulsion for uh, submarines. And um, uh, in some ways that makes a lot of sense because of the distances that we think about um, Australian submarines needing to transit. But what's your view on nuclear propulsion? Did Australia make a mistake in not attempting to go down that path? And is it something that we should be thinking about as a possibility for future submarines, perhaps even beyond the attack class? I think I'd be thinking about it as a possibility, although I think that's a wider question also about nuclear power in Australia. Mm. Um, I'm somebody who believes that sh Australia should go to nuclear power, although it should be run by obsessive compulsives. <laughs> Um, and it's, it would be something to do in the future. What I'd also say is that there's no question, if you write a staff requirement for a submarine for Australia, the answer would be a nuclear boat, ideally. Exactly that point of distance mm. and transit times and all the sort of things that a nuclear power gives. But um, we have no nuclear industry. Um, if we were to set up and move down that path, we have to accept it would be an enormous investment. The submarines are already an enormous investment, um, but this would actually be, there's no way it couldn't be additional to our current investment. Um, there are arguments for it, but I also think there are arguments against it to say, well, what are the opportunity costs and what other things could you do with that money? Mm -hmm. um, this report, for instance, talks as it should, I think, about the potential of unmanned vehicles. Mm -hmm. And I really think there's enormous potential, not only for unmanned vehicles, but for submarines and indeed other major platforms, both surface and air, to become what I call masters of the swarm. In other words, you know, that they can take a fleet of unmanned vehicles with them yeah. um, and basically be the controlling unit for them. I mean, we're now seeing uh, on the part of the, uh, the Americans uh, and the Russians in particular a, a huge investment going into really large unmanned submarines. Is there a case to say that, in fact, we should be taking humans out of this capability altogether? Why do we still need humans in submarines if unmanned is the future? I think unmanned's part of the future. Right. Um, but I think that, um, you know, there are limitations to it. Uh, there are also um, considerable expenses. I really think this idea of unmanned vehicles where you can create local networks which can't be interfered with um, in a cyber war 
you know, you can't attack the um, supporting communications. If, if you've got local networks, line of sight, short range, underwater and the rest, mm. have much more potential and you're going to need human beings in it. Um, I have a, a, an aphorism that you actually want to get, even with AI, you actually want to be getting the um, autonomous units to be doing the stuff that's stupid in a sense. In other words, it requires, it's quite clear what you want them to do and you want them to do it continuously and maintain focus and maintain attention, all the sort of thing human beings are bad at. Right. Now, it's not to say that you won't have decision aids and AI helping you, but the human on the loop, I think, is will remain vital. And this is where I get back to this idea that I mm. think the, the future of the submarine is this um, almost command unit with all these unmanned vehicles, all these autonomous units. A mothership. Um, yes, a mothership. Um, for instance, you know, the submarine can stay out of the area of greatest hazard. Hmm. It can send the unmanned vehicles in. And one of the points is that I think the big unmanned vehicles that can go very long distances are actually quite expensive. Hmm. I know they're cheaper than manned units. But they're still pretty expensive. Whereas if you can keep the size down and talk about tens of miles, um, tens of kilometres rather than thousands, you know, it's all much more practical. So the submarine can say, sit um, 20, 30 nautical miles, 50 kilometres off an enemy port and send in a vehicle to say, drop a mine where you want it, yes. or just sit there waiting to, you know, bet you know when the enemy are coming out. Yes. Yeah. So it's all these things, I think, of the real potential. So this gets back to where I think the money needs to be, we need to think about opportunity costs. Is yes. it right to focus on the extra investments for nuclear power or other things? And of course, it's not just submarines in terms of other things. Indeed. Uh, well, from from the sort of high points of um, artificial intelligence to the prosaic matter of basing, uh, you know, we now have a navy that is being created for the future without actually the basing infrastructure necessary to house all of these platforms. What's your thought about the best way to base those twelve submarines when we do actually get them? Uh, I do think we need to have a base in the east. I think that uh, the base in the West will remain the main base and, you know, have the, the Barker facilities, I think, is logical. Uh, but there's no question it would ease manpower, uh, manning problems in terms of people knowing that, you know, if they join the submarine force, they can serve in the East where they come from. Um, where in the East, I'm not sure. Um, uh, in reality, there's only yes. a certain number of yes, realistic possibilities. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's go through those. I mean, we have uh, Port Kembla, we have Newcastle, possibly Brisbane. You may recall Kevin Rudd. Yes, indeed. In yep. fact, uh, in the yep. um, 2013 election campaign, mm. talked about Brisbane as a possible naval bank. Do you have a favourite? What What's your thoughts about where this should go? Um, I certainly uh, am not that enthusiastic about Brisbane because of the um, navigational challenges yes. and... Um, uh, its tendency to occasional floods and so on. Um, um, so I suspect it's somebody somewhere more like Port Kembla or Newcastle, or indeed you might be able to find the space in Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, I don't go down the view of Sydney being a boutique harbour. Um, it is a working harbour and the Navy's been there longer than anybody else. Um, so you might have space in Sydney, but I think it'll be one of the deep water access ports. Yeah. One of the things that we haven't talked about that it might well worthwhile be talking about is the idea you can also have a depot ship for forward basing. Mm. Uh, when we talk forward basing, the narrative's always been in the sense of using other people's ports and facilities, and that's 
that's true. But there are precedents for actually having a depot ship sitting at somewhere like Exmouth. Yes. Um, and that's, that becomes the forward base. Um, hinted at in the strategic update, right? I mean, there is a suggestion that there yes. might be that type of mm. capability to, to, come down, to come down the track. James, one of the curiosities of the current submarine debate, if, if one can call it that, has been the, the relative reluctance of governments to actually engage um, beyond, you know, the ritual of estimates committee hearings where uh, usually it's, it's the opposition sort of setting the agenda for the questions that, that are asked. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to comment on why, why not government is, is doing what it's doing, but, but simply to say, well, how would you sell a project like the attack class and the, and the Collins upgrade? Um, uh, attack class is often described as, you know, the most expensive project that the Commonwealth is engaged in. So what's your, um, uh, lift pitch, if I can put it that way, to persuade sceptical Australian voters that this is an investment that they should be supporting? I think it's this idea to recognise they are great national projects. I think it's to emphasise the technological aspects of it and also to get people to understand the concept of risk and the fact that if you push, technolo if you push technology, if you have a complex new project, there is a certain element of failure involved at any point. It's how you recover from that failure that it says, in my view, as important. And I think we saw this with the Collins class, that the failure of the government um, was not to really explain to people just the challenge we were facing, mm. that to say we don't think there's any other way you can go, it is worthwhile in itself, but certain things will go wrong, and it's how we recover from them. Um, and Australians, I think, aren't good at looking out and seeing how other countries um, are having problems and to understand that if you're trying to do really complex things, they're difficult. So I'd be um, not necessarily specifically, you know, talking about uh, what a deep, let's say, contractual matters that are still being dealt with, uh, because that's always difficult with commercial and confidence. But I think it's getting across to people that these things are inherently complex and difficult, but they're worthwhile. Yeah. And that what comes out of it are all these follow-ons follow in terms of industrial development, technological development, you know, all these things which do actually have knock-on effects. I'm, I'm not convinced about uh, some of the economic rationalists um, who, you know, say, oh, no, you should be allowing, you know, the money to be spent in different ways and the market to determine yeah. how Australia develops industrially and technologically. Government has to drive. Uh, and I think you know, there's, I always think back to being at Harvard when uh, the Singapore government was being used as a case study in the development of Singapore. And uh, at the end of the case study, the lecturer said, now, I want an American to answer this question. Nobody from overseas is to answer this question. Which organisation was primarily responsible for the success of Singapore and its, and its industrial, financial, economic, economic development? which entity, and I want an American to answer. And you could see, and the lecturer picked clearly the hardest sort of you know, US businessman present, and it was a struggle for him to say the government. The government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of the day, there is no other entity that is going to be able to uh, make the case to the Australian public, it seems to me, 
Uh, and I think it's also, you know, relevant to say, uh, James, that as as difficult as Collins class was, I mean, ultimately it produced one of the best conventional submarine capabilities in the world, and I think still is regarded as that. So you can have success as well as challenge. Yes, you can. And I mean, and, and, and to be fair, part of that failure, and something that really struck me at the time after the Macintosh Prescott report was pointed out to me by an American expert, was because we hadn't thought through the question of risk and because you know, there were other political pressures and um, keenness to get the project going, the contingency funding wasn't enough. Mm. And this American expert said to me, look, if you have a greenfield project with a new submarine design in a country that hasn't built submarines before, with a country that hasn't exported submarines for 50 years, working with them, you need a 15% contingency. And the contingency was tiny. So it was both actually a financial decision, but associated with this was this outlook. Um, and of course, because the contingency wasn't enough, a lot of small problems weren't fixed early yes, yes. and gave the submarine the bad reputation. Yes. Well, uh, folks, submarines, your questions answered. Uh, we've done our best to identify all the possible questions and queries that people might have about the current submarine capability and future submarine capability. Uh, I hope you find it interesting reading. James, thanks for joining us today and thanks for your contributions to the book. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with another episode next week.